you have your Bibles this morning, you may turn to Mark chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 13 through 17 in your pew Bible. That's number 837. We've chosen to title the message this morning, Jesus and the Deplorables. Jesus and the Deplorables. From Mark chapter 2. Verses 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his home, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It was during a presidential election a number of years ago that the word deplorables was used. You may remember that. In fact, I think the word or the phrase, basket of deplorables, was used. Now, the word deplorable is a pretty strong word. If you look up its meaning, it simply means a person of shockingly bad quality. My father used to tell me, now, son, watch the kind of people that you run with. Some of you have heard the expression, you can tell what a person is like by the company that they keep. Would you agree with that? There's another saying that goes like this, birds of a feather. Would you agree with that? Now, today, we find a situation that seems to contradict this wisdom. We find Jesus in the company of the disreputable. We find Jesus in the company of sinners. We find Jesus in the company of deplorable people. Now, What do we do with this? Why is Jesus keeping company with disreputable people? Something's not right here. The situation begs the question, is it it possible to keep company with bad people? Not because you like to hang out with bad people, but because... Maybe there's something else going on here. 
We see this principle in other areas of life, don't we? I mean, think about it. Doctors spend time with sick people. It's not because they want to be sick or they like being around sick people, but rather they want to see them made well. Some of you are teachers, and we see this principle with, say, kindergarten teachers. Why do kindergarten teachers keep company with snotty-nosed kids? Is it because that they prefer the company of five-year-olds over the company of adults? No, it's because they want to have a positive impact on their lives. But the Pharisees could not, for the life of them, understand why Jesus would want to keep company with deplorable people. The Pharisees made an incorrect judgment about Jesus. They made the mistake of assuming that he preferred their company that he preferred the company of deplorable people. Of course, the Pharisees thought of themselves as the good people, the righteous people, the clean people. The Pharisees never stopped to ask why Jesus kept company with sinners. But Jesus did keep company with sinners. You realize that, don't you? And this is a very important lesson for us. I'll even go one step further. And I will say that it's right for us to keep company with deplorable people too. That is, if we want to be like Jesus. Our problem, however, is that we uh, tend to keep company with people that are like us, people who think like we do, people who act like we do. And this is a mistake. It's the same mistake that the Pharisees made. And so as you listen to this message, you should be asking yourself, are you more like Matthew Levi or are you more like the Pharisees? Now, I need to give credit to John R. Stott, former pastor of All Saints Church in London, who was an inspiration to me in preparing this message. He had a message called, What Kind of Company Do You Keep? And I bring some of his ideas forward uh, in this message. Now, many of us have heard about the account of Levi Matthew and his conversion. We remember Jesus saying to Matthew, follow me, in verse 14. And then instantly, Matthew gets up and he follows Jesus. However, sometimes we skip over what happens right after his conversion. And what stands out in this passage is not only Matthew leaving his tax booth, but the fact that he throws this dinner party afterwards. 
And so in this passage, we actually have three characters. We have Levi Matthew, and we have the Pharisees, and we have Jesus. And each one of them has a response or a reaction to the publicans and the sinners. And so the passage unfolds like this. First, Matthew throws a dinner party for his friends to introduce them to Jesus. And then second, the Pharisees respond negatively to Jesus for being there. And then third, we find Jesus defending himself for his actions toward the whole situation and then also telling them of his mission. So the first part is Matthew throws this dinner party. After Jesus calls Matthew, in verse 15 it says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now Matthew was a tax collector, or what the Bible calls a publican. Matthew's friends were tax collectors. Many of them were Jews. And do you know how the Jews regarded tax collectors? Well, they thought of them as as sinners on several accounts, politically, ceremonially, and also morally. Politically, the tax collectors were hated because of their association with the Roman government, because the Roman government was thought of as being very suppressive. Ceremonially, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, thought that because of all the contact that the tax collectors had with the Gentiles, that they were unclean. And then morally, the tax collectors were thought to be dishonest because sometimes tax collectors would take money that they shouldn't. And as long as Rome got what they wanted, if nobody else seemed to mind, well, that was fine. Except, of course, some people did mind. The Jews did mind that. And so they were thought to be morally deplorable. So this is why the Pharisees categorized tax collectors as sinners. But you know what? Jesus didn't seem to mind. In fact, he called Matthew as he was sitting in his tax booth, verse 14. This was a a public booth where all the business was taking place. And so Jesus was not afraid to be seen with Matthew. And this teaches us a very important lesson, which is this. Jesus has room in his kingdom for deplorable people. We sometimes think that Christianity is only for good people. However, you need to know that the kingdom of God is made up of tax collectors and thieves and greedy people and drunkards and hell raisers and extortionists, and such were some of you. The Bible says, until you came to Christ. 
There are a lot of lessons that we can learn from Matthew's conversion, but this is what is happening here. Matthew is found in a very despised station of life. Jesus calls him with an effectual calling, saying, follow me. And then Matthew gets up and he follows Jesus, and then he throws this dinner party. Why did Matthew throw a dinner party? Well, apparently Matthew wanted Jesus to meet his friends. And apparently he wanted his friends to meet Jesus. When you think about it, it was actually a pretty creative idea. Once Matthew had met Jesus, it was only natural for him to want to introduce his friends to Jesus. And this is very important for us to learn as all Christians. And I'm going to come back to it in just a minute. But then the second part of this passage unfolds with the Pharisees responding negatively to Jesus. Notice with me in verse 16. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus once told his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. What was their leaven? Well, the word Pharisee means separatist. And they were very much unlike another group of Jews called the Sadducees. While the Sadducees compromised with the Roman culture, the Pharisees separated themselves from it altogether. The Sadducees held the philosophy, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. But the Pharisees held the philosophy, well, Rome can go to the dogs for all we care. The Pharisees had even formed their own sect, a kind of clean club. Over the centuries, they developed a system of meticulous observances and rules in auxiliary to the law of Moses called the tradition of the elders, which did all kinds of things or made one do all kinds of things like fasting twice a week and tithing down to the very leaves of their herb plants and also doing things like washing their hands frequently, those kinds of things. And anyone who would not do what they did were thought to be unholy. The Pharisees thought that they were a special holy people because they had developed this elaborate system of man-made rules that they dutifully obeyed. They made long prayers saying, I'm, I thank God that I'm not like this other person over here who's not doing what I'm doing. But Jesus said that the Pharisees did not obey the weightier matters of the law, things like justice and mercy. For example, they evaded the command of honoring their father and mother by giving their money to God 
so when their parents got old, they wouldn't have to give any money to them to take care of them. Pretty clever, right? Jesus reserves his sharpest rebuke for the Pharisees because most of their rules were just shrewd ways of evading God's true commands. He called them hypocrites and blind guides and whitewashed tombs and vipers. So, the Pharisees were utterly shocked when Jesus sat down with common sinners. And yet he defends himself for his actions. That's the third part of this passage. Jesus defends himself for his actions. Verse 17 says, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so here we discover the reason why Jesus spent time with deplorables. As a doctor spends time with people, not because he likes sickness or because he likes being around people who are sick or because he wants to spread a disease, Jesus did so because he had a mission of healing. Jesus mixed with tax collectors and sinners not because he liked their ways or approved of their sin, but because he had a mission. By eating with sinners, he was not promoting or endorsing sin, but did so as a way of bringing healing to their souls. After all, the Bible says that Jesus is the great physician. So we should understand that Christianity is a rescue mission. It's a rescue religion. A doctor does, a doctor does not heal those who are well. Of course, the Pharisees were not so righteous that they didn't think they didn't. They, were, they, they thought they were so righteous that they didn't think they even needed Jesus. That was their problem. But actually, they were self-righteous in thinking that they didn't have a need for Jesus. But Jesus told the crowds that followed him, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the only kind of righteousness that will allow us to enter the kingdom of heaven is the righteousness of Christ, which is given to us when we come to him by faith. So we need to understand that Jesus is in the business of rescue. We are talking about mission here. And so do you see how that Matthew, who was newly converted to the faith, understood more the heart and the mind of Christ than the Pharisees? 
who avoided sinners altogether? It's a beautiful story. Matthew throws this dinner party for his friends to introduce them to Jesus. And this turns us to the theme of evangelism. This area is going to grow in the next five years. What are you going to do about it? As a young man, I was exposed to the, a practice that perhaps can be described as hit-and-run evangelism. Maybe some of you have been exposed to the same idea. The idea is to secure a profession of faith any way that you can. It's a technique. The technique does not require you to know anything about the person that you're talking to. All you need is the Romans Road or the four spiritual laws or the wordless book of colors and a truckload of self-confidence that breaks all the rules of human communication. Now, practicing this form of evangelism could be challenging for an adolescent like me who was just adjusting to the number of zits popping up on his nose. And so you could be talking with someone about the weather or about Joe Namath or about the Beatles' White Album, and you suddenly pop the question, by the way, if you die tonight, do you know where you'd go to heaven? You know, the great models of this sort of evangelism were the pastors and the evangelists who shared their own stories of winning people to Christ by crawling under automobiles to unsuspecting mechanics to get them to agree with all points of Romans Road. So all you needed to do was get this person to pray right after me, right now, right here, and be saved. This method was as easy as one, two, three, repeat after me. Now contrast this hit-and-run style of evangelism with Matthew throwing a dinner party. As we get to the close of our message, I want to share a little bit of church history with you because it's relevant to the message. In his book, the Celtic way of evangelism, how Christianity can reach the West again. George Hunter says that for a thousand years, no outside religion had penetrated Ireland. Now, the Romans reg regarded the Irish as barbarians because they were, they were illiterate, they were ill-disciplined, and they did horrible things like making human sacrifice. Now, Ireland consisted of numerous tribes ran by tribal chieftains or kings and religious leaders called Druids. The Irish, or the Celts, as they were known, they were fierce warriors. They would strip down for battle, and they rushed their enemy naked with swords and shields screaming, as some people said, like demon-possessed people. And so 
This is why the Romans thought of them as deplorable people. Even after Christianity became a recognized religion in the Roman Empire, there was still a great reluctance to go over to Ireland and evangelize this this isolated island of about a half a million people until a person came along by the name of Patrick. Born in Roman colonized Britain during the 5th century, Patrick's father had been a deacon and a civic leader. However, when Patrick was 16 years old, he was kidnapped by Irish pirates and taken to Ireland. And he stayed there for a number of years, but after being there six years, he escaped and came back to his homeland and then prepared himself and then went back over to Ireland to evangelize the people who had kidnapped him. The thing about it is, Patrick now understood their customs and their ways of life. And he used this knowledge in a very strategic way. Unless you think Patrick evangelized Ireland all by himself, think again. His method of evangelism was not that of a drive-by shooting. His method of evangelism was one of one community engaging with another. Patrick would take about a dozen or more people make up of, made up of ministers and seminarians and laymen and laywomen, and he would set up camp right outside of a pagan village. Patrick's band of Christians would then meet with the people, and they would engage in conversation. They would teach, and they would preach, and they would answer questions, and they would pray for the sick, and they would pray for those that were possessed. They would even mediate tribal conflicts. But most importantly, they broke bread together. They shared meals with one another. And this didn't happen in one day. This happened over a period of weeks and months. In other words, the way that Patrick won Ireland was through hospitality. And what a difference it made. What many of us fail to understand about the the evangelizing of the Irish was that it was one of the most successful stories in Christian church history of people coming to faith. Ireland converted to Christianity in a relatively short amount of time. And then later, Ireland sent missionaries to Europe to spread the gospel. In his book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, Thomas Cowhill documents how if it were not for the Celtic Christians, many, uh, much of the great Western heritage would have been lost during the Dark Ages. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that we are now living in another kind of Dark Age. I don't think the church can depend on one, two, three, repeat after me, 
to reach the people in darkness. In fact, what we need to do is look at the Bible, and we need to look at the Great Commission, which says that we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, I think Matthew gives us a pretty good example. A simple one, really, of just sharing a meal with someone. Patrick also gives us an example to follow, one of hospitality and community and a willingness to share our lives with people that we deem deplorable. Father, help us to take your message to heart today. Help us to have a passion for those who do not know you like Levi Matthew did. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand to your feet as we affirm our faith together.